You will have noticed that it is St. Francis who we celebrate today. We're not in the habit of uh, celebrating the saints, so this year we have begun to make up for that. We're celebrating a lot of them. Uh, but we are certainly not in the habit of translating, as the word is, uh, saint to a main Sunday celebration. Uh, for St. Francis, we do this. We always ask the question, why? And the beautiful thing about St. Francis is that there is always another reason. He has been called recurrently throughout the history of the church, the second Christ, as that person born on this planet who most closely resembled Christ. Well, we'll find out, I suppose, when our day comes to be ushered into the presence of both of them, I pray. Why do we celebrate him? Now, because of his love of animals, Christ seemed to have uh, certainly a heart for animals, yes, and we will put that love into action as we bless with our prayers and with our efforts those uh, who work for the redeeming of creation, animal rescue agencies who will be on our front lawn in a few hours. They work for it, they don't just wait for it. I challenge you to come back this afternoon with your kids. You might go home with a puppy or a kitten or a little bunny rabbit this year and you will know that you're doing your bit for the good of creation. Francis loved this creation and our hymns celebrate this world that God called into being and then called good. God also loves the work of his own hands. Now, on the basis of this love of the world, you might say that Francis was the most worldly of saints. Anyone who travels to Assisi and takes in the medieval magnificence of his shrine there will agree. You look at these extraordinary paintings uh, in this vaulted halls with these different levels, and uh, you might be tempted to overlook as you go actually from cathedral to cathedral in Assisi, a little heap of stones in one of them. This is one of the churches that Francis actually built with those own hands. It's a very modest affair tucked into a chapel. Its modesty and its homeliness are rather jarring in such a context. It says something more about Francis. Yes, he loved the world, and he was special heart for these creatures, but there's one thing he loved even more, and that was poverty, lady poverty, as he called her. And with her companions, chastity and obedience, he entered into a mystic wedding. No one took those nuptial vows more to heart, for poverty is taken on by many a saint, than Francis. He would take off whatever little he had, especially if it was his clothing, and give it to someone he thought stood before him in greater need than he. Our Lord says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, they don't work. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Francis grew up very well clothed. He ate very well. He lived at the top of the food chain, literally. And his father was a merchant in fine and exotic fabrics, silks from the east, silk velvets from the west. 
Francis loved to wear soft clothes, and until he put on the steel armor and the chain mail of a knight and got himself taken prisoner of war in a very ill-conceived and even worse executed military operation to redeem the honor of Assisi, his town, he knew only life in the lap of luxury. Sometime in a cold, hard dungeon awaiting ransom enriched his life experiences immeasurably and gave him a taste for that experience, something which very few people who come out of ever acquire, a taste for poverty and for hunger and for cold even. He recognized that they did something to transform him and he wanted more of that. Now, let me say one thing. It is one thing to aspire to poverty. It is another thing to actually be poor. And it is another thing to be worldly. And most saints that do well or aspire to do well at poverty show only a passing contempt for this world. They turn their back on its beauty and lock themselves into an inner prison cell and maybe an outer one of escasis for the time they must while away as they languish waiting for heaven. This earth is not their home. They make it very clear we're just a passing through. Is this Francis' experience? No, interestingly. Francis went out into the open air, in the open sky. He made that his chapel, his cathedral. And where other saints do what they can to cut the tie that binds them in tension to the charms of this world and think themselves well for doing it, Francis sought for no such easy relief. His brothers even had sisters, if you like. Um, they quickly drew followers of both genders, and I doubtless the uh, gifts of chastity and obedience came in very handy, but what's impressive is the exquisite equanimity that characterized the relationship between uh, the men and women in Francis' com company, very much like Jesus' sense of egalitarian uh, community among them. And Francis saw the beauty of this world, as did his sister, sister in Christ, Claire. It was not lost on them and opened up for both of them a vista of heaven or of the new creation, rather, that grew more luminous and intense as his short, hard life went on. It was on this day in the year 1226 that he said to his brothers, knowing that his life was coming to an end, lay me naked on the hard, cold ground again, the cold ground from which I came. Francis could very well then say with the Apostle Paul that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. But that day when he returned the clothes off his back to his father on the cathedral steps and turned his back on his place in the world, his place in the food chain, the prestige, possessions, and even power that were his privileges, and set out to rebuild the church as he was commanded to do in a vision and took it to heart quite literally, he was indeed building not just little chapels of stone, simple things, 
those single barrel vaults that showed the modest limits of his mason skills. But in that action, in that renunciation, in that adoption of utter simplicity and utter dependence on God, he showed the bold vision of the new creation which God had also given him, which counted for so much more than the boundary markers, the outward signs of his identity, the marks of his circumcision, if you like, which came with his place in the world. Francis somehow was given in that prison experience the freedom by dying to the world to be given the world back again, to learn to love this world in a whole new way, not as something that is ours for the taking, something that is ours to be possessed one piece at a time, whether it's terms of real estate or money or simply the goods that this world provides. Francis discovered the freedom that one could love all creation and work for creation while owning nothing. He knew that the new creation, in fact, indeed starts with our new life on the other side of the veil with nothing at all, for we take nothing of this with us. Feel a tingling admiration for those who can put together a billion dollars. Something in that capacity inspires all of us. But I'm reminded that the challenge of something that you can't take with you is what on earth you're going to do with it. Well, you have it. I think it's only a few brave souls that are called to that and I have yet to see those who really know what to do with it when they get it. Francis found his bravery in the call to simplicity that our Lord Jesus gave to us. Francis left us one thing, if you like. It was this. He took our Savior's words literally because for him, and he can honestly say what I think many or very few of us can honestly say, his Savior was his Lord. Jesus really guided every factor of his life. We make, of course, a proper show of reverence in our church, of setting the Bible up on a stand, in our particular family of the church, we draw from the Bible the four books of the gospel. We privilege them, and we put them over there on a stand. And then from the words that speak of Jesus, we will take those that Jesus spoke and give them a precious status. Maybe they're even printed in red in some Bibles. And from those words that Jesus spoke, the words in which he said, do this, the imperatives, we take as the ultimate key to our biblical theology. Well, in theory. Because the things that Jesus says that we should do are usually shockingly simple. They don't require much exegesis. They jump right off the page. And they so strike us with their impossibility that we decide we'd rather rattle around parsing 
words from the Apostle Paul for some exegetical nugget, rather than letting the plain, clear word of truth that Jesus speaks directly to us make its impact on our souls. Well, Paul is also speaking to what Jesus did with his words, so there's no escape there. But we will try. That's in our being. We heard the words of the Beatitudes this morning. The surprising things that Jesus lifts up as a sign of what we should all be striving for in this life. Not health, wealth, and success, but brokenness, grieving. We've heard of his own words to us, too, in his words to his disciples, asking them, how much do you need? How little do you think you really need to live? Very little. And Francis took the Lord at his word. He traded his brocades and his elaborately cut garments for a simple tunic of unbleached wool. Soon enough, that wool was not just stained with the earth, the dust, and the rain, and the mud, but it was worn, worn, and ragged. And Francis patched his garment on the outside so that people might see him as he really was. He died of exposure, of malnutrition, of overwork. I'm not asking us to do the same. But I am asking us this question, not how to die, not what do I need to do to die to this world, that's a question for other days. What do I need to live? What is enough? When is enough enough? What do I need to own to be happy? And I suggest that if we follow Jesus' words and Francis' life, it may shock us how little it is. Francis found out for him it was very little. No, it was nothing at all. He found that you don't need to own something to love it. You love it more when you can set it free. And when you can empty your heart of its desires, when you are crucified to the world in this way, of desiring it as something that you might possess, and desire this one thing, the one person, the one who alone can make you happy, you have found a way to be happy and to know when enough is enough. We might, as we confront a planet which is trying to tell us with its voice that our resources are becoming more and more limited, seek to limit our desires to have and rather seek to give to take only that for which we can take care from this world and to return it, the earth and all its creatures, to the one who made it a little better than we found it. That's all God asks. And I finish with the words of the prophet Micah. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Does the Lord ask that we 
sacrifice all these riches that we have gathered? Is that what he wants from us, that we would have this stuff, even if it is to give it to him? No, not at all. The prophet answers, he has told you, O man, what is good. And here's what the Lord requires of you, if we're interested. We want to know what the Lord asks, requires, demands of us. It is this, to do justice, to love kindness and mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Amen.